film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumpkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, contributor Sean Naughton and I analyze the findings of the recent Center for Media and Social Impacts report on the current state of journalism in nonfiction, as well as South by Southwest's hypocritical stance on providing spaces for people with disabilities and Sundance's inclusion of Meg's Maker's Jihad Rehab. Then I share my thoughts on Random Acts of Flyness, Jessica Tafasi's recommendation. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I discuss Real Prince Politics. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Hi, Sean. Thank you for coming to today's Real Print. Hey, Eddie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be a very highly intensive discussion today about what's going on with uh, exhibiting films as well as how we report um, movies in the nonfiction realm as there has been a great report from the American University's Center of, uh, well, Center for Media and Social Impact where it's called The State of Journalism on the Documentary Filmmaking Scene by American University Professor Patricia Afterhide and the American University grad student Marissa Woods, where they track about what has been going on in this doc world. And I did not hear this report until a few days before based on True Story Conference. And it really still ties up historically about how many non uh, nonfiction people see documentary mm-hmm. yeah it's good. i think it's a really enlightening uh report and pretty extensive talking about the you know shortcomings of uh the documentary field maybe right now but also you know the room that it has to grow mm-hmm. yeah as some of the problems that the uh, we're trying to find ways to address it is that when it comes to discussing documentaries, either in film scholarship or just reviewing for the New York Times is that it's both on like the documentarians and also the journalists too, where the documentarians need to articulate and publicize the standards of their field as Many forms of journalism, like photo or broadcast, have a set of ethics, not necessarily documentaries. Journalistic editors need to know more about the growing importance of the doc business, and critics need to know about the history and aesthetics of documentary and more public discussion of the doc standards. Yeah, I think I I certainly agree with the report. I mean, it's definitely on the documentarians themselves, but it's also on the, the journalists and, um, you know, kind of takes a village to fund one of these, uh, fund a documentary, but it also takes one to sort of um, analyze it and understand its its worth and its sort of um, the effect it can have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that it's crazy that um, as documentary 
is unfortunately a place that people use for accuracy more than the news or even just Googling many article with verified credited writers where 52% of Americans say they believe that scientific information presented in docs are true and just 28% of Americans trust scientific information when the source is a general news outlet and this has exploited cynically and at times disillusionally because like unfortunately like a mass communication apparatus like doc or even news can at times misinform people about the stuff about things and can at times un unintentionally make people media illiterate mm -hmm. yeah i was i was pretty surprised by the figure um but then, you know, thinking back to just a couple of years ago with all the misinformation spread during um, the height of COVID, I guess it's pretty understandable that there's a little more scrutiny towards uh, documentaries and just this sort of mm -hmm. relay of facts. Um, but yeah, yeah like, you know, it's important to standardize it. And I think one of the big takeaways is that, you know, the documentary field is is going to continue to grow and you need to sort of uh, make adjustments as it grows, especially in terms of standardization. Yeah, speaking of standardizations, like some people conflate documentary and reality shows in one thing where Tiger King, first and foremost, is a reality series. Netflix, do not label it as a documentary <laughs> because there's some stuff that like people, like some random viewers would trust what the, the participants or subjects would say in Tiger King, then even Google like some of the past shit that they've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I think it's like, sorry. Yeah. I'll, uh, similarly, I am thinking back to something like making a murderer, where um, you know the documentary is more upfront about how it's less a sort of showcase for the innocence of this man than just the, the corruption and the um, mishandling of the, from, of the police department. And I think it's, it's, it's really, it is a massive part of it is how it is sort of presented to the audience, either from the, the production itself or the distributor like Netflix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Netflix have categorized a docudrama Operation Varsity Blues starring Matthew Modine as a documentary where like people can't tell what's a reenactment or what is like the clear side of the line between fiction and nonfiction. And uh, that while documentaries can form uh, fiction narrative works, it can actually um they can still um confuse people who are really not into this field either as a constant viewer on good faith or people who are actually making these works mm -hmm. yeah and something else like uh I don't know, like american animals or something where it's like a very docudrama very explicitly so but you know the 
it still dramatizes some of the other events while presenting the the actual historical figures and stuff too so it's especially when films are and documentary and fiction are getting more blended you know you really need to um make everything a little more transparent mm -hmm. yeah and speaking of transparency like funding for these movies can outside the public sponsorship like or public tv like for corporation for public broadcasting itvs and even with nonprofit orgs like sundance there's a lot of conflict of interest possibilities where um for example without a net is fully funded by verizon and the uh, and the film does not disclose Rise's interest in E-rate or conflicting views about how that fund is managed as it's a doc about how um, the issues affecting the FCC's E-rate policy. And uh, while there, we do have to acknowledge like there is, like at times conflict of interest doesn't mean as much if the director is the main person in the film, more like the personal realms like stories we tell or Dick Johnson is dead, but at times, like with the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, like Michael Jordan did, and his company like did partly produce a film and definitely have a greater say of what's in and what's not in the dog. Like there's, I wish I could hear more of Craig Hodges who was unfortunately back blackballed in the NBA and you would not see that in that movie because Michael Jordan has like a strained relationship with politics and uh, I don't want to go too far on it, but it's just that some, like, you need to be careful when you see who's like producing these movies, like what's going to be left in or what's going to be left out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's already a messy field before we even add in the, the conflict of interest you could have. And it's especially tough because you, when you have if you're thinking on the more like fiction side of things, sometimes you can have a director that's high profile enough to be able to push back against the producers maybe a bit and, you know, kind of keep that creative vision of his. But in the documentary field, there's not a lot of sort of household names, I guess, this is for lack of a better word, um, that are going to maybe be a little easier pushed around by the likes of Michael Jordan, people like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also like particularly with, film criticisms like like we need to acknowledge the reality that we live in a predominant white society and uh, a lot of the standards and norms and professionalism will be predicted by white people where it can definitely inform like how this person will think of this movie coming into it as especially with documentaries where there's it's a predominant why feel where it's poorly informed where they will discuss just the subject matter of these movies rather than like the artistic values which is and because of the subject reporting rather than artistic reporting that's why we don't see non-fiction movies like in the high standard as a fiction movie mm -hmm. yeah it's uh I can I can understand how it can be a little daunting for um, I don't know, journalists to want to engage with something maybe they don't 
fully comprehend or um, they feel that they're not the best to engage the person to engage with it. But it's, you know, you got to sort of reconcile that with a willing to willingness to learn and also like a willingness to sort of fail and then be taught the correct way. As like the critiques when they do come can be um, wronghead does not really focus on the media. Like it just ignores the film on screen and its goals on exposing to film goers in America they were ignoring and the critics tend to be from a dominant social demographics such as BIPOC, LGBTQ+, young and non-coastal writers are uncommon in major outlets. And as the report says, like there's like, even though like, I don't like the label of exceptions, but there's a lot of great critics out there, whether it's Eric Daggins at NPR, Mahida Gajanan at Time, Chaos and Collins at Rolling Stones, New York Times, Leslie Matthews, as well as um, other great ones. And uh, that it can, uh, like, that the skewing of film criticism to the white and male has implications for the success of films made outside these dominant social ca- categories. And uh, that it's unfortunate that there's needs to be like support, like in a good way, support groups, such as the digital platform, Token Theater Friends, led by arts critic, Jose Salis. And uh, there is a column on film school just called Through a Nave Lens, where Shea Nassar will write about stuff in the film industry and that um, there's just so much ways that there needs to be improved in the doc world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both the doc world and especially journalism. I mean, all the names that you name for um, people of color in, in the major news outlets, it's, it's very lacking when you kind of just are only able to name, able to name a couple, but then you think of how many news outlets there are that review movies and documentaries and you know it's just something that you have to first acknowledge as the shortcoming of the industry and then you know make an effort to um remedy um with you know hiring more people like Kay Austin Collins or Carlos Aguilar and um sort of diversifying the field and mm-hmm. yeah and there's also ways to hold like people accountable, such as um, the group documentary accountability working group, um, where they set a good set of values for more equitable and less exploitative documentary filmmaking. Forward Doc has a guide for writers about uh, showing or representing disability in film and undocumented filmmakers collective produced a standards document for people who are asked to be filmed for a documentary. And uh, we, even though it's always tricky about concrete measures, but there needs to be guidelines of how we should uh, um, build solidarity and uh, like be able to be media literate for many stuff instead of uh, trying to accomplish this one agenda that can hurt many things. 
and that for trying to make it more of an artistic field for journalists to write about rather than like have be subject based like we need to like as a platform with real print we are decimating this report that will be available on our show notes and uh, there needs to be festivals like true falses based on true story uh, that showcase accountability issues and offer people a chance to engage each other around the accountability and the realities of the field watchdog entities um, fellowships for researchers at nonprofit investigative journalism or research orgs and to um, expand opportunities for BIPOC and uh, LGBTQ plus voices and uh, people with disabilities in the creative scenes and uh, to develop workshops and events that provide a critical and analytical training and uh, there's a lot more that's on that report where I don't want to take too much time, but it does, this report does set up how we view documentaries to this day and even documentary exhibitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was very well said. I don't know how much I can more can add to that, but all of that accountability is incredibly important if we're gonna, you know, yeah. be on the road to diversifying and becoming more media literate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Patricia and Marissa, for this report, as it will definitely inform how we in, not just um, make movies, but also just be better human beings and not uh, try to make profit off of others or be narcissistic. And mm -hmm. uh, now, and when it comes to um, these realities, it can definitely affect about what's going to be seen and what's not going to be seen. And uh, there are two major festivals that have uh, a lot of controversy with this right now. And of course, it's not as well like publicly acknowledged beforehand, but there are many filmmakers that have uh, brought these film exhibition controversies up. And we'll start off with South by Southwest where they are hypocritical in, uh, in giving opportunities or even the space for people with physical disabilities. As Reed Davenport, the director of I Didn't See You There, wrote an op-ed on uh, the International Documentary Association's website about how South By has been hypocritical of their DEI inclusion towards um, community members with disabilities where you get to read this um, op-ed on the, our website. We'll put it on the show notes, but he was, Reed was actually going to plan to attend South By this year because he was going to represent a film he associated produced, Your Friend Memphis, that played in the documentary spotlight competition, but decided not to go because there was a documentary there that had the title Spaz, which is about um, animator 
Stephen Williams, who worked on Jurassic Park. And uh, I don't know how Stephen got that nickname and uh, that there is no reclamation for like Crip Camp, for example. And uh, it definitely like ties into like how we do our best to like say things, but not take action. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very um, messy situation, um, but you know I, I completely understand the place where he's coming from, mm-hmm. and the way that, that he he mentions how <laughs> I, I I also have, I have no idea how you get Staz from Stephen or, <laughs> but um, I can completely understand his sort of he he mentions I think. Uh, an interesting part where he says it's, it's not really a boycott of one but sort of more like an act of self-preservation because spaz for him is so inherently tied to um the disability community that he, he's a part of and um yeah i just think it's it's just important to you know increase awareness of that and and accountability mm-hmm. this is more of just not being in an enablist culture that to Alan with Sean saying, and uh, for non-disabled people that have used that word, mean, jerky, or on edge, not necessary to muscle spastic, and has mentioned how historically speaking, doctors and uh, other authorities do not have proper knowledge on uh, the human body and uh, the fiscal disabilities where th- these professionals will always consider the, um, some of Reed's muscles, quote unquote, spastic, and how that makes him think of his like personal moments, like in his life where like it talks about how it isolates him and that he w- mentions that there are some words such as cripple and gimp when he's within the grounds of disability community that Stephen Williams movie title is not and uh, that South by has uh, at times done some good programming on showing provocative political disability films such as Jennifer Brea's Unrest best and most beautiful things and single. And this year, in addition to your friend Memphis, Shadow and the blind man who didn't want to see Titanic, but they've also had uh, um, not well nuanced portrayals of people with disabilities, such as the audience award 2010 winner for once in my life, which is a band made up of Goodwill employees with disabilities, but it's a charity model that encourages ableist gays and projection while providing no access to individual agency. And in 2019, there was a narrative film called Comes You Are to Star, Robbie Patel and Gabriel Sidbe about three disabled men played by non-disabled actors who go on road trip on a quest to lose their respective virginities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot there. And it's just, it's important to, you know, be consistent, especially like going back to just South by 
um, and the sort of your your language that you say for your your DEI statements, and then your sort of um, access to disabilities um, at the screenings, and just your handling of sort of how it's going to affect even just you know one individual in terms of you have to think about yeah just it's important to sort of individualize your approach to um your dei and make sure that you are like walking the walk with, along with you know putting out your statements of dei and inclusion and um just being aware of how it's going to affect each person mm -hmm. he wants to acknowledge that uh, that he didn't want that south by has not programmed his films not because on anything other than the films not fitting to the programs in terms of quality the subject he recognizes like how at times south by gave a space for several um films that center on stories of, around people with disabilities and will always view um these view disability in the political lens because he, like he and many people have uh, like been politicized and uh, at south by there was even they even had an accommodations page which is says that all designed a uh, designated um accessible seating transportations are on the capacity and provide first come first serve basis which no don't do that you should never have a quota you should always have a, at least like i don't want to give a concrete money but there always needs to be a lot of room for empty spots for wheelchairs and also rooms for people that can't like rooms for seats and also rooms to stands like i understand that there are several places cities vehicles facilities that do not accommodate that and uh, there's always room that you could uh, like i don't want to say limited seats but there's a lot of better ways to do that and there's also a quote-unquote accessibility designated south by batch that provides attendees with a disability access to designated seating for sessions, film screens, and the viewing platform. But this there's a reason why people with knowledge of accountability uh, of accommodations um, are bound by strict confidentiality. And Reed will never wear his accommodation information or general need of it publicly. And uh, I understand that South by is trying to do their best, but there should not you should not have a like a public document of what people need to know. And uh, it definitely doesn't give many non uh, people who use a wheelchair like a chance to see um, people like Reed, a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. That's definitely the last point you made is especially important. You know, it's, you gotta not make these sort of documents and out of just a sense of sort of obligation, you gotta, you know, make sure and empathize, make sure that you understand that it's a, it's a human being who's gonna be 
using these protocols and whatever you put in place. And um, of course you want to make it easier and make sure it's more inclusive. Today's review, Terrence Nance's Random Acts of Flyness. I am not the regular viewer of television shows due to my being in the film industry of sorts. I focus on that medium more than others. Still, there is a relationship between singular and episodic content, and I need to have an open mind for all forms of television, not just cinematic TV. Thank you, Jessica Tafase, for introducing me to the show Random Acts of Finest twice when we had class together and on the last episode of Real Print. The sketch comedy show is from Terrence Nance, a multidisciplinary artist who makes films, music, and different forms of performance. It is hard to describe the show. According to a Deadline article, the show is a fluid mind-melting stream of conscious response to the contemporary American mediascape. Each episode mixes documentary segments, terrific animation, surrealist, melodrama, and musical performances. Like last week, I won't do a formal review, but this is a tremendous limited series. It has brilliant edits that place like Adult Swim materials. You wouldn't believe some of the segments that are on the show. There is a commercial about John Hamm's White Thoughts, a different take on the direction of romantic relationships, an actual detachment of vaginas, a piece of afro-textured hair going through a Malcolm X homage, and many other types of surreal shit. It is important to know that I, a white Jewish man, will not fully understand it as I'm not its intended audience. There are some references that are more specific to black audiences than non-black audiences like the word Bidusi. Despite not being part of the intended audience, it is a universal show for all walks of life that wonder about life. It's a show of viewing art in different emotions such as laughter, sadness, and distraught. The show has a great and talented crew. Some of the people who worked on the show include Masters, Mariama Diallo, Judas and the Black Messiahs, Shaka King, DP Sean Peters of Summer of Soul, and The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, Port Authority and Seal in the Space DP Jomo Frey, Gaffer Alex Ash who work as a DP on the 2022 Rotterdam winning short Nosferasta First Bite, and was a gaffer on After Sherman and Summer of Soul, editor Kristen Sprague of Italian Studies and Judas, co-producer Nikia Moteri of Nanny, and assistant director Annalise Lockhart, who was an AD on The Assistant and directed the short Inheritance and was just named on last year's 25 New Faces by Filmmaker Magazine, and Nuotama Budomo of Afronauts, among others. I appreciate the different storytelling presentations within Random Acts. I know Terrence Nance does many mediums and will not focus on a second directorial feature after an oversimplification of her beauty in the season 2 of Random Acts of Finders right away. He just executed produced Nanny, Peer Kids, and Nagiato Jusu's short Suicide by Sunlight. Of course we all want Random Acts of Finest Season 2, or a second Nance-directed feature, but be aware of the brand that he has built. I want Terrence to take time with it, Terrence should not ponder anything to the fans, and that's my take.
as we definitely spoke a lot about like doing our best to keep South by accountable. Like I never stepped foot there in South by. Like I just want to be clear about my like disclose how I'm affiliated with South by and that was Sundance too because like I submitted a movie to Sundance. That's the only thing I ever have with Sundance. I don't have anything with them yet. So like I will do my best to hold Sundance account with how this year they programmed the the Meg's Makers poorly titled documentary Jihad Rehab, which is about the four Yemeni men who are detainees at the Guantanamo Bay are being transported to a quote-unquote rehabilitation center, which is actually an incarcerated facility in Saudi Arabia. And uh, there is just so much um, missing links and unethical filmmaking in that movie that I don't know how you were able to get that on camera. Like, who approved of this when uh, Meg brought this film to several filmmaker retreats? And uh, there has been so much controversy that um, XDR Media and Berkeley Foundation quietly removed their names from the credits while the funders, um, like the Gotham Film Media Institute and the Fork Films CEO Ago Disney will later bring like a well thought out apologies and accountability statements for the future of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot to get into with Jihad Rehab, I think just starting right away with, um, I can't remember which article uh, it was that brought up that brought it up specifically, it'll be in the show notes, I'm sure, but just how uh, poorly titled it is, both words of the title, not really meaning the intent of the filmmaker, Jihad, of course, I guess is supposed to be a stand-in for terrorism in terms of uh, for Smaker and, you know, for, for Islam, it's much more just a personal struggle and uh, leading your Islamic life. And it's, it's unfortunate that, that they're using it to mean the sort of the worst connotation that has been drilled into minds of Americans for 20 years in the war, uh, from the war on terror and also just less, less uh, egregious, but still, I mean, rehab, you know, you think of it as a little more like voluntary. And in this case, it's, it is like an incarceration center where they're being de-radicalized. You can't see me doing your air quotes because it's a podcast, but um, a lot to dig into, yeah. Mm -hmm. There had been a group of filmmakers who happened to be Muslim or from the Minasa region where they are holding not just the Sundance Film Institute, but to many film involvers, whether that was a journalist who at times had poor language when sharing this film out to the world, investors, and also other organizations about how you enabled an Islamophobic 
culture to this prestigious film institute that's the that kicks off the calendar year and uh, this is untaxing labor as a uh, filmmaker Rossi Jeffrey of Ham Tramp USA said because it's sad that many marginalized people have to always constantly prove like their humanities and uh, like always have to be questioned about their existence on earth and uh, like I want to say that the members of this group and there's no hierarchy there's no like a public president or anything but they're all just trying to let many film people know that there is there's a lot better ways that uh, you can not like to avoid unethical situations and the filmmakers are Speed Sisters director Amber Fairs, The Feeling of Being Watched's Asia Bandali, producer of Ghosts of Sugarland, Reverse Shot Rider, and the director of grants programs at Brown Girls Doc Mafia, Freya Zaman, Jude Chab of the upcoming Doc Q, Kala Malik of How the Air Feels, Malika Zuhai Waral of Thank You for Playing, Marjan Safinia of and she could be next. Nasheen Dadaboy of An Act of Worship, an upcoming feature. Rebab Haj Yaya, the editor of Speed Sisters and Feeling of Being Watched. Rozzy Jeffrey of Amtrak USA. Sammy Khan of The Last Out and St. Louis Superman. Samia Khan, not related to Sammy, of Accidental, US, uh, Accidental Activist. Sunane Kashki of Project Kashmir. Smriti Mundra of St. Louis Superman, Sura Malu, a filmmaker and past Sundance Grantee, Talal Jabari of Nayland Uprising, and Zishan Ali of Two Gods. And I apologize if I butchered any of your names. Like these are filmmakers that have past affiliations with Sundance, either having their works be played the best or be a participant in the labs or or grantee and uh, they are in these trapped spaces as Bandai mentioned in her op-ed between um, invisibility and hypervisibility and that in Jude Chab when sh she wrote her op-ed like her voice as a practicing Muslim woman is stronger than a white woman and saying that it isn't is problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the group um, for people that don't know that don't know Manasa, it's for uh, Muslim, Middle Eastern, North African, and South Asian. It's the group of filmmakers um, that are rightfully <laughs> trying to hold Sundance accountable. And you know, I'll dig into it as much as I can, coming from a sort of white passing Hispanic background. But um, you know, it's important to hold them accountable, not because they need to be punished, but you know, it's, they make it very explicit that it's comes from a place of growth and learning. And, you know, we, you want Sundance to be better. You don't want them to fall into these traps and unfortunately, you know, keep um, sort of progressing these stigmas that exist around the Manasa filmmakers and mm -hmm. Islam. As I don't know how many of you know me, I am a white Jewish man and 
we are both aware how limited this conversation can be when we don't have people of cultural experiences on, but we do need to mention that if we're silent about it, it's violence. And once when real print has becomes more larger where like we don't have as much connections, I'm always happy to have uh, every filmmaker on on real print as long as you don't deny one's human existence as it's not a debate about morality and uh, that due to the controversy of this um staffers brandon coughlin past director of impact and strategy and kareem ahmad ahmad past director of outreach and inclusion program resigned at the end of february because of this and there's just that it's some people are saying that we should not talk about if we haven't seen this movie i admit that i have not seen this movie but i want to talk about because it's not just a movie it's about enabling uh islamophobic culture but also having a war named after her an objective like who the hell creates that terminology about a war on an adjective? I'll also I'll say I haven't seen the film, but you know it's important to engage with um, the material still, and um, based on a lot of the articles that have been shared and will be in the show notes, you know it's it's it comes from a place of like I said before, you need to sort of. Um, ensure that you're not perpetuating these stereotypes that have harmed Islamic people, not just in the US, but for the past 20 years, probably more. Um, it just became sort of front page news when, more than 20 years ago, but um, you have to listen to these people when, when they say that this is perpetuating harmful stereotype. We get that maybe your intent came from a place of empathy, but that is not how it comes across. And our voice as Minasa filmmakers should outweigh yours as a white woman filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as um, there is a great essay from uh, documentary film strategist Sonia Childress of Color Congress titled Beyond Empathy, where like while it's important to understand one another the empty model to build for marginalized groups or normalized whiteness or how whiteness is the lens that others are viewed understood and judged and instead of that we need to build solidarity as she points out because like it's not just of uh, seeing an individual's person but also building and creating bridges and friendships to create a more unified society and that there's just moments in jihad rehab where like like especially like from the articles that the there are two of the four men that don't want to be filmed or be on camera and uh, you're not fully um, requesting their privacy and also that Meg's maker who claims to have uh, uh, being fluent in 
Arabic, only speaks Arabic partially and mainly speaks in English in the movie and uh, like doesn't actually not fluent and uh, like she's just like lying and doesn't really want to like be self judgmental of herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's at least important to acknowledge the place that she's coming from where she um, had been in Yemen for five years and um, that's how she became fluent in Arabic and that fluency, she says, allowed her to gain access to the um, rehabilitation center. And um, so the film in a way is, um, I guess talking about she was also, she was a firefighter and she, she never um, moved out to, to the Middle East to, after um, and has spent years there since and that's so been moving around went to Afghanistan and then and then in Yemen before making the film and so in a way the film is sort of the arc of the film is sort of tracking her own sort of view and into excuse me sorry let me restart it's it's tracking her um, judgments of this place as a white woman coming from America into viewing these people more as humans. Um, it's not, it's, of course, it's not explicitly said, but just this, that sort of arc of having to begin with people not viewed as humans into then humanizing them, I think is incredibly problematic. And, you know, it may, the end point may be a point of empathy, but there's an inherent, of course, flaw in that general progression of that is presented in jihad rehab mm -hmm. yeah she also asks the question are you a good or a bad muslim that definitely avoids many people's overall around experiences that makes of who they are like you can't just generalize a person as good or bad and like the film could have explored like where they are present day and how to suddenly speaking gone to they are where they are innocent of crimes but unfortunately Meg addresses them as members of Al-Qaeda or a terrorist and uh, it's even has poor animation that doesn't explore like the nuances of uh, that incarceration facility and how like someone that can easily code things like Meg and called a, rehab a rehabilitation facility can definitely misinform like the press, um, critics, and uh, can have people be shocked at what there is going to, what they will see in uh, um, Jihad Rehab. Yeah, um, I think especially when you're trying to frame or when you're asking these sort of leading questions, are you a good Muslim or a bad Muslim? But then your sort of filmic engagement with the material and with your your people on screen is so vague. It's especially detrimental to whatever you're trying to do when you're asking these people questions and trying to gain their trust and you know trying to ensure 
that your interactions with them are always consensual when, you know, from a craft standpoint, from a film side of things, you're not addressing the reasons behind their detainment, how it's all alleged charges against them never proved and eventually dropped. Um, and you have these sort of unnecessary rap sheets for, for the detainees. And, you know, it's just such an unnuanced take for a, for a film that seems to double down on a black and white view unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, to add on to like the history of Sundance in 2020, they had a competition selection call into the deep and it was removed by its circulation from its distributor Netflix after interview subjects in the film played that they didn't consent to being the film about Peter Madsen's murder of journalist Kim Wall. And they also um, signly removed Michelle Latimer's and Inconvenient Indian from the World Doc Competition after a CBC investigation revealed that um, Latimer's claims of indigenous descent were suspect, but as listed in Abby Sun's um, filmmaker's magazine Sundance the Patch, that's going to be on the show notes, is that they have still on the side of victims in expose docs like on the record to honor their voices after Oprah left the project as an executive producer. But Sundance has to acknowledge that having a film exhibited in a public setting and avoiding um, films that deal with the similar subject matter and avoid those that are more nuanced and that doesn't deal with like does and that doesn't stigmatize um, Islamic people will definitely give a message of who we value the most. Mm -hmm. And it's especially it's it's on Sundance, you know, to sort of look within and uh, grapple with their sort of internal review system and understand that picking, choosing a, a film like Jihad Rehab for, for a competition slot in the docs uh, side of things is going to kind of come across as maybe not a full endorsement of it, but at least something worth mm -hmm. celebration. Yeah. That's not the right word, but you, you, yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as several of the filmmakers that I said earlier met with festival leadership on December 17, 2021, and asked if they can gather data about the film, the festival's programming record on films about Arabs, Muslims, and the Middle Eastern, North African region. And in the absence of the response, they had to do their own data gathering and gathered a list of films that was played in the last 20 years of publicly listed programming where there is 76 films in the US and world doc competitions about people that are Muslims and or people from the MENA region or that takes place in them. And just first before I go off anything else, having three movies across 
two jury programs in the nonfiction sphere. That's just already sad just to actually see that there is not much across many different programs or showing people stories that they can aspire to look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's um, just kind of disheartening looking back at the, the, the figures of the sort of un nuance and the dehumanization of the of Muslims on screen and even behind the camera when they're not when they're disproportionately not Muslim people telling their own stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as to Alan Sean saying, fewer than 35% of these films were directed by MENA or Muslim filmmakers. And when it comes to films about wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, the predominant lens, which Muslim narrators have been depicted in Sundance's doc competitions, only 25% of these films were directed by Muslim filmmakers. And the more disheartening and despairing is that there are only four feature films, feature documentaries in the competition programs about the Muslim experience in the US and two of them are about war and terror. And just the four alone definitely gives the stigmatizations that uh, people who are Muslims or from the MENA region like are invaders or are a threat if like you don't have a lot of U.S. stories about Muslims or people from the MENA region. Like it, it can show how we're all alike. We live like nearby each other and having a lot of films that are not in the U.S. that center on uh, um, these groups definitely perpetuates that stereotype. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it all really it comes down to the sort of humanization of everything. I know, I know we've already taken down that word uh, in this episode, but, you know, it's acknowledging that they should be allowed to tell their stories, whichever stories they want. You don't have to, Muslims on screen don't have to be either terrorists or something else as <laughs> surface level and one dimensional. Um, and it's just, it, I, I, I think about the, the uh, one of the other articles you, you shared, that would be in the show notes, the op-ed about um, the Muslim filmmaker. I just want to tell my own story, how as she was pitching, to producers um, and they had some hesitations and wanted to her to add a white co-director and you know she was just like I, would they say the same thing to Agnes Varda <laughs> it's just it's you need to you know sort of overcome the stigma and also push back against this sort of white homogenized documentary field and producer and the gatekeeping um that is it's filmmaking and a lot of sec uh, corners of it mm -hmm. yeah i was just actually going to bring up asia's la times op-ed where you that we said the the points that she has to face in making the film being watched and also that she was a finalist for like one of the grants or award for sundance while for making this film but once when that investor at Sundance literally 
ask that question again, did you have a white director? Um, Asya said, no, like I can be myself. And that like Sundance rejected her. And uh, we have to acknowledge that when people speak out on issues, they may have to, like they'll face backlash and they may be blacklisted for not being able to be part of these organizations against or that relationship with that funder or investor or the person who provides grants, um, it can go in the opposite direction in the snap. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's important to hold them accountable because at the end of the day, it is kind of up to them to sort of recognize their own biases and be willing to give out the grants and not deprive audiences of the the sort of varied stories that are going to come from Muslim women um, or other people of color telling their own stories without the need for a white accompaniment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just that white people are always entitled and always want to have that one white person just to like quote unquote see themselves even if it's just a supporting or one that only just appears briefly but no white people you don't need to see yourself in every damn thing let there be rooms for BIPOC and female and non-binary voices yep completely agree well said and that there's also because of this there's a hashtag on Twitter called my Muslim films where several filmmakers who are Muslims share a lot of powerful stories that about being Muslims that don't tie to negative stereotypes of violence or of terrorism, where it, unfortunately many did not get to be at Sundance but got to be at Doc NYC or TIV and other amazing festivals where there is a film Koya by Sami Khan, um, Inara by Mesa Hari, Away Together by Sana A. Malik. And please check that hashtag out on Twitter. It definitely shows you um, various diversified, rich stories of uh, different Muslims. And I do also want to mention that, in a, like earlier, that when there's people speaking out, they always need to have support when they do that because that support will let Sundance know, hey, we are with these directors and we know that we have past ties with you, but we do want to create a better world where we don't have to um, deal with unethics and uh, like if you have to deal with it, but be able to hold that accountable and also held UTA accountable for even being a sales agent for GI Rehab, which as of today, March 30, there is no distribution. It has not played that anywhere else outside of Sundance. And I do want to just mention like the support they got from other filmmakers and other people involved in it, where don't, I don't view these just as shout outs, but more as other filmmakers who I've actually been myself in past professional acquaintances, whether I was at Big Sky Film Festival, 
true false or even attending Momi's first look film festival and a screen of 32 sounds at BAM where like, even though I am only established, I always have like a couple phone numbers to call to have on real print one day, but I do want to just acknowledge that the more support there is, the more uplifting, more unification, and uh, the less backlash that these filmmakers have to face on a daily basis. And uh, I apologize if I mispronounce your name to get it going, and I and please bear with me for the next couple minutes. Like along with Zishan Talalsara Smriti, uh, Smriti Sanane Samia Sami Razi. Rebab, Nasheen, Marjan, Malika, Kala, Jude, Rhea, Asian, Amber. There is Dockyard Curator and the film writer Abby Sun, uh, Alex Pritz of The Territory, Fauci producer Alexandra Moss, Alyssa Namias of Producer I Didn't See You There, and Unrest, Two Gods producer Aman Ali. Belly of the Beast producer Angela Tucker, um, unapologetic director Ashley O'Shea, Mago Mogli's and upcoming Blade director Basam Tariq, Al the Muck director Bowen Shuchak, former Sundance staffers Brenda Coughlin and Kareem Ahmad, Hottest August director Brett Story, Dara Lost Bird director Brooke Sweeney, Field Visions co um, founder and Zeta producer Charlotte Cook, Neutral Grounds, CJ Hunt, Who Streets directors Damon Davis, Ansabah Foyan, Hottest August producer Daniel Varga, and Mayor director David Osid, um, Procession director Robert Green, my past Emmy professor, as also another past Emmy professor, Kamal Bilal of Baby Brother. There is also people who signed. I'm sorry for just listing names, but I'm just saying how much support it means that these filmmakers have. As there's also Elon Coleman, producer of Dos Seisiones and director of Dos Seisiones, Juan Pablo Gonzalez, Fire Love producer Iman Finchman, Stories We Tell's DP Iris Ang, Brown Girls Doc Mafia head Yabo Boyd. Riceville producer Jamil Lignot and director Sierra Pango, um, Third Horizon Film Festival founder Jason Fitzroy Jeffers, and NBCU's manager of fellowships and artistic development, Janelle Augustin, American Factor producer Jeff Reichardt, Fadid's Jessica Bashir, Ascensions, Jessica Kingdom, Boycotts director Julia Becca, and the uh, Lana Wilson of Miss Americana, American Factory Editor, Lindsay Utz, Black Star Project CEO, Maori Holmes. And uh, there is also Becoming Director, Nadia Hallgren, Ascension Producer, Nathan Truesdale, Director of Knockdown House, Rachel Lears, Hale Counties, Ramel Ross. I didn't see you there editor Todd Chandler, and the uh, director Reed Danport, Sirens, Rita Baghdadi, 
live animated director Roger Ross Williams, um, Saeed Taji Bruski of A Thousand Fires, Rideville producer Sarah Archambault, Seth Hernandez Ronquillo, one of the main people of Undocumented Filmmakers Collective and director of the upcoming feature Unseen, Sophie Khan, producer of Act, Act of Worship, Sonia Childers of Color Congress, Stanley Nelson of Attica, Crime Punishments, Steve Mang, Ursula Ling of Down the Dark Stairwell, and so many others that I just want to let people know about why we need to uplift instead of just shout outs. Yeah, um, not really sure how to follow that. I mean, it's uh, a lot of names, but you know, it's important to take action or make sure that the words of diversity and inclusion and um, for all these institutions are turning into actions and mm -hmm. films from yeah. more marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. And there is some su suggestions that the media filmmakers want to have on Sundance, which is a clear public statement from the Institute may fault necessary and first step in taking accountability um, formulation and design of a revamped festival curatorial practice, mandatory training on and implementation of safety and security protocols and doc ethics for all institute and festival staff before the opening of the submissions window for next year's fest, mandatory anti-Islamophobia training alongside existing anti-racism initiatives. I recommended to promises made in your public statement in 2020 in light of the Black Lives Matter uprisings, including your commitment to transparency by annually sharing the demographics of all festival screeners, reviewers, and programmers, and public reporting on this annually, and publication data of all movies programmed at Sundance about um, people that are Muslim or people from the Middle East and North Africa or films send those regions since 1985. And uh, there's just like so many suggestions Mary should not um, take this to like, it's not too much to ask. Like it's easy to just say movies that we've done before or show before and that Sundance did actually respond to this on March 11, where they said that we commit to deeper dialogues and the actions they inform around support for Muslim artists and severally documentary ethics and best practices. And they'll hold a conversation with other festival leaders to discuss specific responsibilities of festival curators in relation to the questions that should be asked of film teams before selecting programming works and implications of those answers continue and deepen our work to have a Muslim and Minasa artists and uh, through our safety and belonging program committed to equipping our staff and ours and audience community to further devise of DEI and uh, planning an upcoming session specifically around Muslim cultural competency and anti-Islamophobia and these trainings will enhance broader cultural competency and, and the foundational to Sundance works and that they mentioned some of the data about 
he was there. And like, even though it was great, I just wonder if they'll be able to hold that to mid-career or later artists because a lot of the stuff they have is more for like the develop development in labs and not necessarily stuff that's like the fellowships or grant or funds is for like a mid-career to later artist. And I did wish that they could say specific names like the Muslim Public Affairs Council's Highway Borough and the Islamic Scholarship Fund where they previously partnered with a panel that included Iman Zari of Americanish and uh, Sami Khan and Kimal Bila. And just that there's just so much that I'm saying want to make it concise, but I wish that they could be more detailed in how they can make this forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you got to reiterate also that this, this isn't about punishment or anything like that. It's about accountability as a way of, of growing and fostering a better um, documentary field and also like an extended fiction field just um but you know sort of mm -hmm. yeah what i've been saying pretty much this whole time is just it's all about diversifying from a point of um genuine sincerity and compassion and something that is needed and is not because they messed up or something it's it comes from a place of necessity mm -hmm. That's all well said, and I don't want to go too much rant on Sundance, but before I let you go, Sean, I just need to thank Patricia, Patricia and Marissa for the CMSI report, Reed for um, holding South by Campbell in his op-ed, as well as the filmmakers, Amber, Asia, Faria, Jude, Kala, Malika, Marjan, Nasheen, Rebab, Razi, Sammy, Samia, Sanane, Smriti, Sura, Talal, Zishan, and all the many signatories in making sure to help Sundance and other film organizations a more equitable, accountable, inclusive environment where no one will be hypocritical in DEI statements. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, very important to mention the filmmakers and the writers. And thank you for all the, for listening, all the writers and the op-eds. And thank you, Eddie, for, you know, giving me all the resources and putting them in the show notes for everyone else to read, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I do, like, I'm sometimes a little bit, like, amorous or anything where, yeah, I need to have every, every fact. And uh, if I misstate a fact, you can always reach out to me on Instagram or on realprintpod at gmail.com. That's R-E-L print pod, P-O-D at gmail.com. And that's all on today's real print. I don't want to hold anyone too long, but it was a very meaningful conversation. While we are aware how limited it can be, but it is what it is. And we will try to make it a space to amplify BIPOC voices, female identified femme non-binary directors too so i just needed this conversation like even though it's going to be out in april 
we don't want this to die out and hopefully let Sundance and other film people remember the shit. Mm-hmm. And that's all, folks. Bye. Today's concluding thought, real prince politics. No matter what you do, there will be a set of politics that comes with X things you do, even if you don't categorize it. There are ideals that you may not necessarily put in writing, but audiences can analyze such interpretations. I need to mention that those interpretations are not just what people think of real print, they are also what they think of me. Real print is an extension of myself, Eddie Frumpkin, real print founder, and you cannot separate the two. While I can say things and do activities with good intentions, I know that the effect and outcomes will matter the most. There will be things that are not my control, and I need to live with that. I'm also aware that I'll be judged by what I do not say or do not do, and that actions speak louder than words. Please call me out when I have done something that I need to be accountable for. I will own my mistakes when that happens. It should not be an act of canceling, but counseling. As humans, we should grow and evolve instead of having several events that already define people's perception of XYZ. I will provide a detailed explanation, apology, and statement on said event. I'm not a censored person, as real print does not belong to a radio station or corporation. I allow my guests to say what they want and need on real print. I make sure that it can be seen and heard, and I need to thank all the guests for sharing personal stories and trusting me with the information they give to me on real print. While I mentioned filmmakers earlier on as a type of real print guests, I want to add that some of my upcoming and planned guests would be people who write about film or work in film organizations that are not necessarily making films. They have great thoughts on the direction of the medium and exhibition skills on film. I want to include them to show audiences the different paths to pursuing film or being in the industry. I forgot to mention three things earlier in my talk with Sean, which I want to address before finishing the episode. First, Sundance included the world premiere of the documentary Sabaya last year, a doc that takes place in the Minnesota region where the filmmakers performed unethical conduct to the on-screen people. Second, filmmakers Zashan Ali, Sami Khan, and Jude Chab were at the same retreats as Meg's maker. They told her separately of the offensive meaning of the film's title, and Smaker brushed off Chap by saying she likes how it rhymes and let Jude know if she thinks of something better. It has been happening through the years of the making of the film. And that leads me to my third most important part that I didn't get in my talk with Sean, which is before the Sundance premiere, Smaker invited some of the Minnesota filmmakers to see a rough cut of the movie, but had to sign an NDA for it to happen. Most of them didn't sign it, and I won't be surprised if that version is the film's final cut. You can find other things regarding this event on the show notes on this episode's webpage. I wish the men featured on screen in Jihad Rehab to be safe and protected after Smaker and the producers violated their privacy, and that's today's concluding thought.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, Like Clockwork by Benjamin Kling, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.